Hello again, and welcome back to The Blacklist, where I, your host, Mariah, discuss the beginnings, lives, and legacies of Black Hollywood stars who are often forgotten, a footnote, or left out of the narrative of Hollywood's beginnings entirely. This new season was inspired by the mini summer series, and particularly the two final films by the prolific African-American filmmaker Oscar Micheaux. I was inspired by his tenacity and his ability to make the kind of films he wanted, against all odds. And I figured where there's smoke, there's fire. I was right. Last season, we talked about the lives of black women pioneers on screen. This season, we're exploring the lives of black pioneers off screen. I'm talking about the rise and the fall of the black independent film movement of the early 1900s. And so this week, we're going to discuss film's humble beginnings. So here we go. 1820. Thomas Rice invents the character Jim Crow and his city cousin, Zip Coon. 1907, Thomas Edison releases the film Ten Piccaninnies, and the Sealy Polyscope Company releases The Wooing and the Wedding of a Coon. 1903, director Edwin Porter releases one of the first, quote, full-length films, the first film version of Uncle Tom's Cabin, an adaption of the popular Harriet Beecher Stowe novel. All of the main black characters are played by white actors in blackface, and the actual black actors only play extras in the film. This story will go on to be the most adapted film of the silent era, with nine known adaptions between 1903 and 1927, which ushered in the sound era. Trust me, the trouble didn't stop there, but that's a different story for a different day. Let's back up a little. 19, 1896. The New York Times reports, Coster and Bial's Music Hall, 34th Street, tomorrow, Monday night, the only Chevalier new songs together with all the other great foreign stars. Extra, due notice will be given to the first public exhibition of Edison's latest marvel, the Vitascope. April 20th, 1896. New York City at Coster and Bial's Music Hall. Thomas Armat's Vitascope is debuted under Thomas Edison's name. The Vitascope is marketed as a machine that can project moving pictures onto walls or onto a screen. That night has been described as such. A buzzing and a roaring were heard in the turret, and an unusually bright light fell upon the screen. Then came into view two precious blonde young persons of the variety stage in pink and blue dresses doing the umbrella dance with commendable celerity. Their motions were clearly defined when they vanished, a view of an angry surf breaking onto a sandy beach near a stone pier amazed at the spectators. A burlesque boxing match between a tall, thin comedian and a short, fat one, a comic allegory called the Monroe Doctrine, an instant of the motion in Hoyt's farce, a milk-white flag repeated over and over again, and a skirt dance by a tall blonde completed the views, which were all one wonderfully real and singularly exhilarating. I think it's interesting to note that one of the earliest things to ever be seen on a screen are two, quote, precious blonde young persons, unquote. 
Suddenly, public viewings are happening all across New York City. Not the beginning of motion pictures, no, but an important stop on the way to global domination. One of the earliest dominoes to fall, if you will. With leisure becoming a pastime in the United States, within a decade of this debut, motion pictures move from the fringes to the center of entertainment, stealing the hearts and attention of people globally. This shit was like sliced bread before sliced bread. Look, I know I don't need to explain to anyone the importance of films and all the reverberations of its unprecedented success. I know this. But it is important to talk about how quickly things moved and how lucrative this business became. Everyone wanted a piece of it. Everyone had ideas of what to film and how to make money or how to entertain people with the newness of it all. It seemed like everyone would get a chance to tell their story. Well, almost everyone. Black people's tenure in this country has never been one free of strife. And as you'll recall from the stories of the women from our first season, the entertainment industry, an industry classified as a leisure activity, is not and has not ever been any exception. During the Reconstruction period in America, the Ku Klux Klan was formed to suppress radical Southern Republicans. Side note, I know I don't need to remind you that the Republicans before the 1960s looked nothing like the leech, soul-sucking devils that we know them to be today. Well, I mean, they probably look like them, but their politics were more democratic. They called themselves the Party of Lincoln. Abraham probably would not recognize them as his people at all, though. I know you know this, I do, but these past few years in America have shown me that you should never assume anyone's knowledge on even the most basic U.S. history, so there you have it. The Ku Klux Klan was created to uphold Southern white supremacy post-slavery and during the Reconstruction period, but with Jim Crow laws rise to prominence, the Klan kind of went away because Southern whites had found a way to keep black people from voting, thereby keeping them oppressed. Isn't it crazy how history just repeats itself? With the rise of industrialization in America, the country established itself as the global superpower. And thus, the great northern migration began because there was no opportunity for black people in the South. Sure, life-threatening things were occurring all over the country and the world, but this seemed enticing. The Great Migration lasted until the Great Depression of the 1930s, and with the Negroes coming north in droves, it made white people nervous. They feared some kind of Bolshevik-level overthrow of the government, which would have been cool, I'll admit, but it totally wasn't the point. Of course, that didn't stop the white people from carrying out their own form of retaliation, i.e. the Red Summer of 1919, when hundreds of deaths mostly black, occurred due to racial riots in direct response to the post-war tensions between blacks and whites over jobs and housing, etc., etc., etc. But I am getting ahead of myself a little bit and just a little bit off topic, so let's back up. In the mid to late 1910s, white Americans had come to view movie making as an immoral waste of time which absolutely wasn't going to stand with the burgeoning film industry after all of the money that they had invested into it. So theater owners did what white people tend to do best. They elevated their content, raised their prices to appeal to a wealthier audience. They made movie stardom glamorous and the center of attention across the world. Studio bosses fabricated these lives and backstories and marriages and molded these stars into the kind of people they played on screen. In doing this, in elevating the content and making movies the place to be, 
they segregated black audiences. In theaters that allowed them in at all, they would only be allowed to sit in the buzzard's roost, which was the second balcony of the theater and the worst seating in the theater. They justified this exclusion by furthering the narrative that had long existed in America. Black people were depicted on screen as liars, thieves, bumbling idiots, inept fools, and all-around stains on society. This, coupled with the release of D.W. Griffith's 1915 film, The Birth of a Nation, is what many people have cited as the catalyst for Black people getting into the film industry full force. More on Birth of a Nation in the next episode, because trust me, I have opinions. By 1920, more than half of America's population attended the movies, but the Black representation was the opposite of the strides we were making. There was a fucking Black renaissance in the 1920s. We were making strides in literature, art, music, theater, medicine. You fucking name it, Black people were excelling at it, despite being metaphorically handicapped by this country. However, the most accessible and inarguably the most popular art form in the country remained predominantly white. And so the representation that we got was films like Nigger and the Woodpile, How Rastus Got His Turkey, Rastus Dreams of Zululand, Coontown Suffragettes, etc., etc., etc. But you get the point, right? When black people were used instead of white people in blackface, it was either to play a caricature in some demeaning way, or an extra, or a brute, or they were to be used in scenes of overt or covert sexual nature. People got blackness through the safety of whiteness, through the safety of people like D.W. Griffith, but not through Zora Neale Hurston or Langston Hughes. The absence of black voices to tell black stories sparked a revolution, for lack of a better word. And like the late, great Nina Simone once said, all great art is a response to a moment. And what a moment it was. White moviegoers had based their concept of blackness on people like Steppin' Fetchin' and his bullshit. And for countries without a ton of black representation, this is what they thought black life was. Black people were tired of it. Race films gave them a voice. They were not only supposed to counter the narrative already in white people's heads, but also to show aspects of black life that no one but black people would have been able to tell. It helped define the black identity in the modern world. After years of existing in an industry where they were forced to seek separate accommodations than white actors, where they were forced to take breaks in separate places from white actors, where they were not allowed to talk to white co-stars on the studio lots, where they were being paid significantly less than their white co-stars, among so, so many other things, black actors had had enough. So they fought back by creating their own industries. The race film industry, where films produced, directed, and staffed, and acted, and or written for black people, by black people. Since so few of these films actually survive, a lot of what I know about them has come from things I've read, some things that I've seen, and some inferences that I've had to make. In the early years of film, black churches used this urban migration to their advantage. They use motion pictures to promote their ideology and to help their churches grow and become sustainable institutions. And for African-American people far from home, church was often a safe space. 
Many of the early race films were produced by the Hampton Institute and the Tuskegee Institute as a part of the African-American uplift movement in the Jim Crow era, which has been described by scholar Kevin Gates as what historians refer to as racial uplift ideology, describes a prominent response of black middle-class leaders, spokespersons, and activists to a crisis marked by the assault on the civil and political rights of African-Americans, primarily in the U.S. South, from roughly the 1880s to 1914. They wanted to counter the narratives that were being presented in one of the fastest growing and most accessible industries ever created. The amount of race films completed between 1910 and 1930 is under a thousand, and there is an estimate that says 80% of silent films with all black casts are lost to history, while an estimate of 75% of white silent films are also lost to history. There's a project sponsored by UCLA called Early African American Film, Reconstructing the History of Silent Race Films, 1909 to 1930. And they have discovered that 759 African American people participated in the silent film industry with 303 silent black films and 175 black film companies. I wish there was some way to talk about every single one of them and every single artist brave enough to live this life, but unfortunately, there isn't a ton of information on this history. Or, at least there isn't a ton of information that is accessible to me. So this season, we're going to talk about just a handful of these film companies, a handful of people who left their mark on this industry, and the rise and fall of the black independent film movements of early Hollywood. Film professor and author of Contemporary Black American Cinema, Mia Mask, once said, African American cinema is a metaphor for the black experience because it is the history of the struggle for inclusion. Next week, we'll begin our discussion on the film that sparked the flame for this movement, 